This morning reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew right in front of you. It can be found on page 1045. God's word says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. As you take your seats this morning, please keep your Bibles open with me to Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. We look at the word of the Lord together this morning. Have you ever noticed in your life that the moments you realize that you are living by faith, it's a theme of the gospel of Matthew, it's uh, not just a theme of the word of God, I hope it's a theme of your life, and and as you live in uh, the life that God has given you and you look at the things around you. Sometimes things happen that are tragic. Sometimes things happen that are on sin and we, we see what God has done to forgive us. Some things, sometimes things are happening around us and we get to that point. Have you ever noticed when you get to the point where you realize, you know, I am trusting God in this situation. When you get to that moment, when you get to the point that you're trusting, that it seems that God puts you in a situation Yet again, that exposes areas in which you need to grow. Perhaps it exposes the true weakness of your faith so that when you think you're growing, the Lord seems to push you even further. Maybe you confess your faith. You confess faith in Christ. Lord, I trust you in whatever is happening here. I believe you in this situation. And Jesus tests that very faith that you confessed. In chapter 16 of our study of Matthew's gospel, Peter, one uh, uh, of his disciples, on behalf of the disciples, if you will, verbalizes the disciples' faith. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And since then, we have seen them go through wonderful times of testing 
and encouragement in their faith. If you were part of the other nine disciples, the ones that did not go up on the mountain with Jesus that we study in the first part of this chapter, then think about what they have gone through since that time, since that confession of you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the one that we've been expecting since then for those nine Jesus has told them he's going to Jerusalem and will be killed and will be raised on the third day. But they didn't hear that part. Jesus teaches them that if they then want to be his disciple, they also must deny self, renounce themselves and die with him. And Jesus goes then way away up on a high mountain with three of the disciples and you're left to do ministry. Chapter 17 verse 14 picks up there as Jesus and the three disciples come back down off the mountain to find the nine that were left there, the nine that were left to do ministry while they were gone and had this mountaintop experience are in a bit of a quandary. This week along with Jesus, James, Peter, And John, we come to the place at the bottom of the mountain from this preview of God's glory. You and I worshiping the King Jesus. We have seen His majesty, His dominion. We've seen a foretaste of His rule forever and ever. He will be King. And now it's like verse 14 hits and you're back to reality. You ever had that in your life? God has been so great to you. You've been on a mountaintop with him and now you're back to reality. Back to ministry among those who are encumbered by the fallen world. Those who are struggling to live by faith. Struggling to believe in the Savior. In those moments, Matthew once again is going to show us our wonderful Savior, Jesus. And in beholding him, we are encouraged yet again today to grow in our faith. So as we come to the end of Matthew chapter 17 this morning, we look at the power of faith and the prediction of his passion yet again and then the payment of this temple tax. I want us to see four truths about Jesus as he interacts with his disciples here in the end of this chapter that will help us grow in our faith. Three stories One about the power of faith, one about the prediction of his passion, one about the payment of the temple tax. Let's look at them together as we learn about our Savior. We'll spend most of our time in this first one in verses 14 through 20. Jesus healing a boy that has been possessed by a demon that makes him physically sick. It uh, is described to you in, in, uh, in the ESV as epilepsy. If you were to have a King James version this morning, it would be described to you as uh, he was a lunatic. Literally in the Greek, this word just means moonstruck. There, were, uh, there was an idea back in early ancient uh, times that the moon actually actually caused some sickness. And so this boy with epilepsy is uh, a one that experiences what you and I know today are, are symptoms at least. It might not have been epilepsy because it was by demon possession, but the symptoms that he had were like those of what we know as epilepsy. And so let's look first in this story of this boy's healing of how Jesus endures unbelief with patience. So I bring this truth to you this morning. I just want to encourage you with our Savior. Look at the Savior. Jesus endures unbelief with patience. When they come back down from the mountain, they enter uh, this 
place where there is a crowd. I, I don't know if this would have been up near Caesarea Philippi, the northernmost part of the ministry. That's where they were before they went to the high mountain. They could have come down south some, back into Galilee. Seems to be that they're back in Galilee here. But they come down from the mountain. There's a crowd that is gathered, and apparently they've gathered around the nine disciples who are doing ministry there. And a man comes and kneels before Jesus, this position of humility before our Savior. And we find out very quickly that he's a father in desperation. Look at what he does. He asks Jesus for mercy. Verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son. He is clearly asking the Lord to do something for his son. We find out the condition is that of a demon possessing him. And the result of that demon possession is epileptic type symptoms, which are described for us there in verse 15. He suffers terribly and often he falls into the fire and often into water. Epileptic symptoms are those that would throw your body into convulsion and you can imagine in an agrarian culture that had uh, heat by only fire that this boy when his body went into these convulsions might throw him into the water, might throw him into fire and so that happens often with this young boy and his father is desperate to find some cure, some cure for his son. We also find out that the other nine disciples had already interacted with this father. And surprisingly, as we find out in this, in this chapter or this passage, that they could not do anything. Verse 16, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. So Lord, I'm bringing him to you. Jesus, I'm bringing him to you because the ones that follow you could not heal him. It's kind of surprising to us. Matthew is writing it in a way that brings us a bit of surprise because in chapter 10, verse 1, these very disciples had been given the authority to heal and cast out demons. In chapter 10, verse 8, they had been given the command to do so. And so now they have been brought with an opportunity. Maybe there had been others. Maybe this was the first time that they had tried it. We don't know. But they were not able to do what God had given them the power to do. Or the command. So they had the authority to do it. Jesus had given them the authority to do it. So we find ourselves surprised. And by the way, in just a few verses, you're going to find out that the disciples are surprised that they couldn't do it. But for whatever reason, they couldn't. And so look at Jesus' response here. By the way, this story is not so much about the miracle that Jesus is doing like it was back in chapters 8 and 9. This story is about the faith of the disciples. So let's focus on them here. Jesus' response. It's as if he's frustrated, but he shows patience. Look at verse 17. Jesus finds out they could not heal him. This father's kneeling before him, begging for mercy. And Jesus doesn't address the father. He turns to the the crowds, perhaps to the nine disciples, the three that had just come down from the mountain with him, and everyone, and says to the generation, O faithless and twisted generation. Jesus responds with an act of of frustration, an act of, of addressing the crowd as one who needs the Lord. And he turns and he asks these two rhetorical questions. How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? Overtones here of the psalmist, God speaking through the psalmist. How long? God speaking through his prophets. How long, O people? 
Jesus' description of this generation in Matthew's gospel, we've already seen it as Jesus describes the crowds, as Jesus describes the generation, the people. We have already seen it in Matthew's gospel. He's called them a wicked and adulterous generation. This description of, his, of, his, uh, of the generation that he is in will bring, uh, reach its culmination over in chapter 23 when they have reached the point of no return in their rejection of Jesus. But here, he, is, he calls the crowd faithless. Faithless and twisted. A church I have not mentioned yet, although I did last week, so that I'll just draw the line back to last week. This echoes Deuteronomy chapter 32. We've mentioned all the way through Matthew's gospel that Jesus is being presented to us as the new Moses. So think about what's going on here. When When Moses goes up on the mountain and meets with God, what does he find in Exodus 31 when he comes back down off the mountain? The people acting faithlessly in idolatry. What does Jesus find here? He finds his disciples acting faithlessly with what he's going to call small faith in just a moment who cannot obey his will even though they've been given the authority. And so this is echoing Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 32 where God's people are described as crooked and twisted in whom there is no faithfulness. And so Jesus describes the generation in the exact same way, oh, faithless and twisted generation. And then he asks the two questions, how long am I to be with you? I can't be here forever. My days upon the earth are numbered because I've already told you I'm going to the cross. I've come with a purpose. And so I need you to grow in faith. There's a, there's a frustration here, but a patience. And just as Moses found the faithlessness of the people, Jesus comes down to find the failure of his disciples to believe and obey his commands. So what does Jesus do? Verse 18, he heals the boy. Bring him here to me. Matthew doesn't spend much time on the actual healing. Verse 18, very quickly, Jesus rebuked the demon. It came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And this story is not focused on that, but you and I need to be reminded that our Savior is able to heal and he does so here. The story is focused on the faith of the disciples. This is the main focus here. The failure of the nine disciples because of their lack of faith. That is the cause of the failure, by the way. It's not the lack of faith of the one who is kneeling before Jesus begging for mercy. It's the lack of faith of the disciples who were not able to heal. Do what they had been given the authority to do. It's not the first failure we've seen by the disciples either, is it? It's becoming a theme in this section of Matthew's gospel. David Platt says the fact that God does not reject the disciples here, the fact that God does not reject them completely here and us when we lack faith, by the way, is a show, is an act, is a a display of God's grace and mercy. They have acted in faithlessness, but he patiently endures their unbelief. And let me say this to you, he patiently endures our unbelief, doesn't he? And he brings us to believe. Aren't you thankful for the patient endurance of our Savior? You see, when I think I'm living in faith, when I think I'm thriving in faith, when I think, Lord, I believe you, I can face anything tomorrow because I know you. You are the king that will live forever. You are my king. And then my life hits me in the face. He pushes me. God pushes me into a situation and often he shows me how weak my faith is. And when I'm weak, he doesn't just leave me there. He doesn't reject me. He could. That's what I deserve. I am so weak in my faith, but he remains faithful. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says these words to us. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. For He cannot deny Himself. So even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And He shows Himself faithful here to these disciples who could not do what God had given them the authority to do. So let me just say this to you this morning, friends. If you are in a test and your faith has been found weak at this point and your faith and your weak faith is exposed before the Lord, thank God for His patient endurance. If you are not in the midst of that test, then expect that it's coming because when we live by faith, when we are growing in faith, when we behold the Lord, His purpose is to grow us to be, as He would call Jeremiah, iron pillars, bronze walls, that we would grow to be those who are strong in our faith and can walk through whatever it is that God puts before us, trusting the King, trusting His plan, trusting His providence in it. If you are in the test, if your faith has been shown to be weak, has been exposed before the Lord, come to Him and thank Him for His endurance. Confess that weak faith and thank Him for His endurance with with great patience. So at this point, Matthew changes the scene down in verse 19. If you would go there with me, this scene goes to a private conversation between the disciples and Jesus. Look at it with me in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. They didn't say this in front of the crowds. They waited till he was alone. They come to him privately and say, Lord, why could we not cast it out? Now note this. This reveals some level of faith in the disciples. There was an expectation that they could cast it out. Why couldn't we do it? There's some level of of faith here. Their their expectation was, we can cast this demon out. So the problem was not their expectation. I think the problem, as we're going to see, is the, the object of their faith. Because there's an emphasis in verse 19 in the question, there's an emphasis on we. Why could we not cast it out? Jesus, you could. You spoke. You rebuked it. It was gone and it was healed. Why could we not cast it out? And so there is something in their question. There is some expectation there. So we must look at Jesus' response in verse 20 and learn from it. Jesus says the problem is not that you had uh, 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 not the power because that had been given to you, not the authority to, to tap into the power of the Savior. The problem was your little faith. Now, church, this is not the first time we've seen this either. Listen, if you thought this morning that you would come and listen to a message on Matthew and you thought that this gospel was all about these 12 that are world-changing men because God had gifted them so well, you were mistaken about the disciples. Four times before this verse, the Bible records Jesus looking at these men and saying, O ye of little faith. So if you find yourself in here this morning with your faith exposed and weakness, you're in good company. The disciples here for the fifth time are being confronted by our Savior. And He says the problem with your obedience, the problem with your lack of ability to follow my will and to cast this demon out is that you have little faith. Literally now, I don't think that he's saying it's quantitatively small. I think that the little faith is to remind us or to expose to us that they have weak faith. It is weak faith that they are experiencing here. And Jesus says it's because of that. 
It's weak. It's impoverished. Jesus goes on, by the way, the reason I don't think it's quantitative is because he goes on to say what you need is not giant faith. He doesn't say you need faith like a mountain. What does he say? You need faith like a mustard seed. That's why I think little faith, mustard seed was and has been in this very gospel uh, brought before us as the tiniest of all seeds. The tiniest seed that they could imagine in their marketplace in that day was the mustard seed. And Jesus then encourages them to have faith of the grain of mustard seed. So what's he saying? He's saying, you have weak faith. What you need is not a giant faith. What you need is a true faith, a strong faith. You see, you and I have seen the grain of mustard seed before, back in chapter 13. And there it's shown as the tiniest of seeds that grows into the largest of all the plants in the garden. It becomes like a tree. And so Jesus says, even here, pulling back into his own teaching, what you need is the the faith of a mustard seed that grows and grows in you. That is what Jesus is encouraging So the second thing I want you to see here is not only Jesus endures our unbelief with patience, I want you to see a Jesus shown to us here in your life and mine that encourages faith with great promise. Jesus not only endures our lack of faith, He encourages our faith. Now notice He does so. This encouragement of faith comes from Him with promise. He says, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. And watch this phrase. If you underline in your Bible, let me encourage you to underline this. And nothing will be impossible for you. Now, church, I wish I could stand before you this morning and report to you that I have a life that is experiencing that kind of faith right now. There are days that I get a taste of that kind of faith. But my life is characterized more by asking for God's patient endurance than living in His encouraging promise. And the disciples find themselves needing the encouraging promise of the Lord here to say what you need is a small but strong, genuine faith that grows and grows and grows. And what you need to hear is nothing will be impossible with that kind of faith for you. So what are you facing today? What are you living in? What's God calling you to do? What's God challenging you to step out of and and trust Him in? You see, this is our Savior and He is encouraging us to grow and to, and to uh, trust Him in accomplishing His will. You see, listen, faith here is faith that accomplishes and attempts great things for God. Not because you are great, but because He is great. Not because by trusting Him, you are something, but by trusting Him, He uses you to do His will. You see, Jesus wasn't encouraging them, by the way, to just go move mountains around. That was just an idiom, a statement, a colloquialism that you can move mountains if you have that kind of faith. It was a colloquialism there just like it is for us. Jesus was saying you can do incredible things that no one would believe that you could do if you will trust me. They had to realize though, I believe this might have been their problem, they had to realize it's not me, 
Because the power of faith doesn't lie in the one who trusts. The power of faith lies in the one who is trusted. And so we need to understand this morning, church, that it's the object of our faith that has the authority and the power to say to you, nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus is not granting them a carte blanche power. In other words, He's not saying you will have the power to do your will or carry out your desires, but God's will and God's desires. And there's only one limitation of carrying out every desire of our God, every thing that you could ever imagine that is God's will that would bring Him glory. There's one limitation and it's the faith of believers. D.A. Carson, his commentary on this, this passage says their failure is a reminder that their power to do kingdom miracles was not their own. But unlike magic, it wasn't just a magic that he gave them. Unlike magic, it was entirely a power that was derivative and related to their own walk of faith. God is not granting you a magic formula here that says, oh, everything is possible for you. People quote Philippians 4.13 all the time like it's a magic formula that God's just giving you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is not a magic formula that you somehow have because you're a believer. It is a call to walk by faith and accomplish everything that the Lord wills for your life. John Calvin in His commentary on this passage says, God does not mean, this does not mean that God will give us whatever comes heedlessly into our minds and our mouths. In fact, since there is nothing more contradictory to faith than the foolish and unconsidered wishes of our flesh, it follows that where faith reigns, there is no asking for anything indiscriminately. So we ask God for His will. We ask God for Him to do things for His glory. We ask God to help us to be a part of what He is doing in the context of Matthew's writing to the church here in Matthew's gospel. Think about Matthew writing this story to his own church and to our church. We are in the same position, church, as the nine who were left behind. When Jesus ascended on the mountain, he left the nine behind to do ministry. And you and I are in that exact same spot. Jesus has ascended to glory. He is in the glorious position of the right hand of the Father. And we have been left on the bottom of the mountain to do ministry. And the question is, as we carry out his work, is will we have this kind of faith to carry out the work, the will of our great God and our ability? to accomplish his mission or our inability to accomplish his mission could be nothing but a result of a walk of faith or a lack of faith. That's it. We are left to carry out the mission. So here's what I call you to. True dependence on the one in whom we can believe. So I ask you this morning, what are you trusting? What are you trusting in? What are you believing today? Do you believe God can do whatever He wants with your life? Will you trust Him? Do you believe God will do it? Will you trust Him? You see, I'm dependent on Him both for knowledge and ability. I'm dependent on Him for knowledge of what He wants me to do, and He's given us His Word. I'm dependent on Him for ability to do what He wants me to do, and He's given me His Spirit. So I can live the way God has called me to live. He can do it. He will do it. The question is, am I attempting things that are great for the cause of our God and His kingdom? 
And there's a follow-up question. Am I tempting them because of God's name and God's great glory or my name and my great glory? Am I trying to do it because I'm a believer and I have the power and I want to bring myself glory or am I trying to bring God glory? Am I trusting God to do His work in this or do I believe that I have the power to accomplish it? You see, I've asked you before, church, and I ask you again this morning, what are you attempting right now in your life that if it were to be accomplished, no one could say anything but God did that? What are you attempting right now in your life that if it were to come about, that people would have to look at you and say, God did that? Church, let me ask you this as a church. What are we attempting as a church that if we were to accomplish it, the world looking on to us, at us as a church would say, only God could have done that. Am I exercising faith that I have to accomplish the mission of my great God? There's the question. Jesus encourages, he encourages us. He encourages our faith with great promise. Nothing will be impossible to you. Let's move thirdly. Jesus explains the messianic plan with purpose. In verse 22, after this story, this failure where Jesus exercises endurance, he then encourages their faith. He comes and they gather in Galilee. And as they gather in Galilee, the, the text doesn't tell us anything else about it except that Matthew wants us to know Jesus keeps driving home with them this. Jesus is explaining the messianic plan with purpose. Jesus explains the messianic plan with purpose. They gather in Galilee, Jesus says to them again this prediction of death and resurrection. Most commentators call this the second major prediction. And the reason is because all of the disciples are here. It's a, it's a major teaching moment that Matthew wants to point out. Jesus had called them together after the confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he had taught them about his death, burial, and resurrection. He says, I've got to go down to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be killed there. I'm going to suffer many things, but I'll be raised from the dead. Here, again, he says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. This second major prediction is not the only uh, prediction of his death. As a matter of fact, in chapter 17, verse 12, we've just seen that he told them just the three up on the mountain as they're coming down, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be treated like John the Baptist. There are other places where we have predictions of his death in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 12. But here he is teaching them about the plan of God. There is a messianic plan and it's not to come and reign and, and overcome the Roman government. It's to come and be a servant to die so that you might have life. This is God's plan. He's telling them ahead of time, this is the plan of God. So when you see the Son of Man arrested, when you see Him crucified, know that you will also see Him raised from the dead and that is according to the plan of God. There is a messianic plan of God. The encouragement for us as we look back on the cross is not to say, oh, I'm glad I know now. We're looking back on it. We see the resurrection. We see the cross. We know this. But you this morning take courage. God's plan is working out. It will not be thwarted. It is coming about. And you and I can trust it. Here there's another purpose given in this plan and helping us to understand. The messianic plan is being revealed in that first statement. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. 
Now, I'm not sure that the disciples knew, but they can look back on this word. He is about to be betrayed into the hands of man. They will look back and know this is what Jesus was telling us. He was not even surprised that Judas would betray him. Jesus knows about the plan and he's telling them about the plan word by word, being specific about what is getting ready to happen. So let me ask you this. As the disciples were being prepared to know what is to come in the same way we have been prepared and are being prepared to know what is to come and that God's will is coming about in just a few chapters in 24-25, we are going to read about the coming of the King when He comes again. And the Bible would tell us, God would tell us, I'm telling you ahead of time, be prepared for my second coming. Jesus explains this messianic plan, and I'll explain it to you again. His first coming was so that he could pay the price for your sin and mine. And he overcame the penalty, which is death, eternal death. He took the wrath of God for you. And he calls you to trust him. And he says, but I'm coming back. For those that are mine, I will return. And the second time, he won't come as a baby in a manger. He'll come as a king on a horse to reign forever and ever. Be ready. Be ready. That's His plan. We are expecting Him to come. God's plan is coming about. The call for us is to trust Him. Trust Him. He knew about His death. He knew about His coming. He knew about His resurrection. He knows about His second coming. Trust Him. Finally this morning in what seems to be a really cool story in the Word of God, I want you to see finally Jesus exemplifies humility. Humility with prudence. Jesus exemplifies humility with prudence. The story of the temple tags. Matthew is the only gospel writer to record this story. Perhaps it stuck out clearly in his mind because he left the tax collector's booth in order to follow Jesus. And so a story of collecting taxes stood out to him. Nevertheless, it is an incredible story to me that I really like, perhaps because I like to fish. Maybe because this is the only time in the New Testament we see a hook thrown in a water instead of fishing by nets. I don't know. It's just an interesting story to me. Maybe it's because I dream about how Jesus got the coin into a fish's mouth. Isn't that amazing? Nevertheless, you know the story. You just heard it read. The tax collectors of the two drachma tax. This was a tax that was uh, uh, collected for the upkeep of the temple. It was started, by the way, way back in Exodus chapter 30, which was instituted as a half shekel tax at every census in order... Excuse me. in order to keep up the tabernacle. It had continued. It had gone up and down through history. And in Jesus' day, it was called the two drachma tax. This was normal, uh, by the way. What we see in the end of this story is it's normal to share this tax between two people because there's not a, a one drachma coin or a half shekel coin. Two drachma would be, uh, um, excuse me, four drachma would be uh, one shekel. And so they had a shekel coin that was minted, which is probably why Jesus says, go pay it for yourself and for me. And so the the tax collectors come up to Peter and they ask as if they're pushing Peter, but they're expecting him, hey, isn't your master going to uh, pay the tax? Isn't it interesting, by the way, they come to Peter? Perhaps because when they're in Capernaum, and we find that out here uh, in verse 24, they have always stayed in Peter's home. So perhaps because it's his home, they feel like they need to come to Peter because Jesus is staying there. Peter, isn't your teacher going to pay this tax? Peter, as the one that we know is never uh, at a lack of words, just immediately speaks up for Jesus and says, well, yes, he's going to pay the tax. And so he has no fear of speaking up quickly ever, and including that, uh, that includes even here. He probably planned on talking to Jesus about it, but isn't it interesting the text tells us in verse 25 uh, 
Jesus comes to him first. Jesus maybe overheard, maybe he just knew Peter had said this, but Matthew wants us to know that before Peter could get to Jesus, Jesus comes to him and asks him this question. Verse 25, what do you think, Simon? Uh, Just another side note here. Uh, Jesus is the one who changed Simon's name to Peter, but he always calls him Simon. Isn't that interesting? What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? It's an interesting question. If you have a king that has a kingdom, who does he tax in order to pay for his kingdom? Is it his own sons? Or is it the people that live in the kingdom? Well, Peter knows. It's others. It's clear. It's a very simple question that Jesus asks him. When I was growing up, when I was very, very young, I loved to work at my grandfather's shop. He had a woodworker shop. He built cabinets. Uh, he had, actually had two shops, two levels. At the top, he built cabinets, and the bottom, he had a, a, a pallet-making shop. But it was all the wood shops, Papa shops, what I call it, Wade Woodworks. And I loved to go work with him. And I don't know why I loved it, because my job at Papa's shop was just shoveling sawdust and hauling it wheelbarrow, one wheelbarrow at a time out to the back to the sawdust pile. Um, and he paid me like $5 a day or something like that back then. And so in that shop upstairs at the, um, at the, the cabinet maker's part of it, he had an old Coca-Cola drink machine. Uh, some of you remember that. Glass Coca-Colas are coming back, and I don't know if you know this or not, but they taste much better than plastic or cans. And so I absolutely love them. He had that old drink machine that actually, when he started it, was a nickel for a Coke. By the time that I came along, it was 25 cents, so you had to have a quarter to buy a Coke. Well, it was my grandfather's drink machine, but he had other workers there, so it still was a quarter to buy a Coke there. But when I got ready to buy a Coke, you know what I got to do? I got to go get the key and unlock it, and pull a Coke out, and drink a Coke. Why? My grandfather, he wasn't going to charge me a quarter to drink a drink. I got to drink because I was a son, right? And so everybody else would have to pay, and they would put their quarter in and get their drink, and I would get a drink because that's my grandfather. He was not going to charge his grandson for a Coke. He would give me the key, and I'd go get me a Coke. That's what Jesus is saying here. A a king is not going to charge his son in order to fund his kingdom. He's going to charge others in order to fund his kingdom. And it's a very clear illustration. Jesus' answer is simply this. Look at this. Don't miss what he's doing here. Jesus, yet again, is claiming deity for himself. He's saying, then what you need to know in verse 26, or excuse me, uh, yeah, in verse 26, the end of it, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What Jesus is saying is, my father is the king of the temple, and so there's no need for me to pay a temple tax. Why? Because I'm the son. I am the son of God, and he is the ruler of the temple. He is claiming deity right there for Peter and for you and I. And then in verse 27, though, he does something interesting to us. However, not to give offense. Church, we've seen this word before. It's scandalized. It's a stumbling block. Jesus' own hometown had been scandalized or offended by him. They had taken offense at him in chapter 13, verse 21. The Pharisees in chapter 15, his disciples come and say, do you know that you've offended the Pharisees? So Jesus has not been so upset with scandalizing or becoming a stumbling block or offending his hometown. He has not been upset with offending the Pharisees. But here he says, in order not to give offense. Here's what we're going to do. I want you to go fishing. 
Peter's all over this, right? He came from fishing. He loves it. He, he's go get your rod. Don't get the nets. Why don't you catch a particular fish, Peter? Why don't you go throw your hook in? The first fish that comes up, I want you to open his mouth, and there's going to be a shekel coin in there. I want you to bring it back to the temple and give it to him. Pay the tax for yourself and for me. The question then comes to me, not that could Jesus put a coin. I've, I've kind of wrestled this week with, man, what would that look like? You know, I wonder who the coin came from. Maybe one of the Sanhedrin was fishing and dropped a shekel out of his pocket and Jesus put a fish to pick it up so that he's given the temple their own tax back. You know, I, I don't know what he did. You can imagine any kind of thing, but Jesus had to organize this where a fish picked up a coin and that very fish with a coin in its mouth got hungry enough to bite a hook and for Peter to pull it in at that very moment that Peter threw his hook in. And God did that. We're not surprised, are we, that God could do something like that. And so that's not the point of this text. The, the miracle here of putting a coin in a fish's mouth and Peter catching it is not the point. What's the point? Jesus doesn't want to get a, give offense. Why does he not want to give offense? You see, I think that you and I read this in the way that Jesus humbles himself under this temple regulation so that he cannot give offense because it's not directly related to the gospel. It's not directly related to the reason he came. This is not the time, Peter. This is not the place for us to give offense because it's not related to the gospel here. And so I also think it's not the place for to put Peter in a controversial position about a tax that he's already said, oh yes, he's paying. There were times at my grandfather's shop that I'd be with my dad. I wasn't just working with me. And there were times that he was there. And when we would stop and and my grandfather's workers would would gather around the drink machine, break time, you know, they all put their quarter in and get a drink. And my dad would take out two quarters out of his change purse. He always carried a change purse. I thought it was a strange thing. I hate change. I hate change in my pocket, but he would always carry one. He would take out his change purse, get two quarters, put them in and get us a Coke. And I remember just looking at my dad like, why are you paying for the key is right there. Why are you paying for these? And quarters were nothing to my dad. Right At the time, to pay a quarter for a drink, he just wanted to be with the people that were working there and be a part of them. And I think that may be what Jesus is doing here. He didn't have to pay the tax. It's his father's temple. But he came to relate to us. He came to become one of us. And so he humbles himself, just like Philippians 2 talks about. To to walk on the level of those that were trying to come to the temple to worship God. And so Jesus humbles himself to the position of the other worshipers because this is not the time or the place to give offense. He relates to them. He is one of us. Jesus' humility on something like this led him to pay the tax, albeit in a miraculous way. Humility leads us to prefer others and not offend them when it's not necessary. Church, you and I could learn a lot from this. It's like we say, well, the gospel is just offensive. Well, maybe it was just because you're rude. You see, I want to say to us, let's humble ourselves and let the gospel offend and not us, not the messengers offend. Jesus doesn't want to offend here. He humbles himself and he's an example. By the way, Matthew is setting us up for chapter 18, which is all about our humility. So just a preview, that's where we're going. We're going to be like these sons of thunder here. And we're going to ask about who's the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven. And we're going to have other things that are going to come about as we see the humility that is called for by followers of Christ. And Jesus is exemplifying that for us. What offended in chapters 13 and 15 were gospel principles. 
Not Jesus keeping simple practices by which he could relate to his own people. See, we learn a lot from his prudence, the prudence of the Savior. See, he is exercising prudence, exemplifying it for us. So let's practice humility like them. Two quotes and I close. R.T. France says this, While there are times when a disciple must make an unpopular stand and so alienate others, many of the issues and practices on which we might legitimately differ from conventional assumptions are not worth fighting over. And so we come to our Savior who exemplifies humility, who explains to us the messianic purpose, who encourages our faith, and who endures our unbelief. And I call you, behold our King, and let's trust Him.